We live in a, a culture, we live in a, a time and a day where it seems like people are increasingly concerned with what others think of them. You know what I mean by that? That, that? that sense of, what will others think if I do this? Or what will others think if I wear this? It's almost like that has become the, the sort of the controlling guideline for life. You feel it, maybe you felt it when you were at school, but I think they feel it even more today. Mom, I've got to have this kind of trainer. If I don't get these trainers, I'm really, I'm just not going to be in with the others. And the pressure is on from an early age. And, and I suppose we could think that, uh, or, or maybe when we were children we thought that for adults it's different. But I think maybe for a lot of us adults who've grown up a bit, we realise it's not really, is it? The pressure is still there. The pressure around the coffee machine, what will people say, what will people think, is huge. And so we live in a culture where we're so concerned with what people will think of how we look physically, what people will think of what we wear, what people will think of our intellect, or what people will think of, of our reaction, or our emotion, or our finances, or our career, or our relationships. What will people think is such a huge, huge issue. Maybe you, you feel it in your own life. This pressure from others. This sense that you can not quite live up to standards that other people hold over you. And then I suppose we, we look at the media and the rich and the famous. We, we see people whose lives are built on others thinking well of them. And, you know, I was just watching an interview yesterday of somebody who's got over a million followers on Twitter. If you don't know what that is, don't worry. But he's got over a million followers on Twitter. And he's, he's able to communicate with over a million people. And the reason they're following is because they like him. Because they want to know what he has to say. They want to know what he's doing. They want to know if he has a coffee. You know? And you think, well, that must be really cool to have a million people caring so much about you that they want to know what you're doing so they can copy you. The, the, the thing is though, when you read the interviews or you uh, see these people uh, in a more candid moment, isn't it true that often they just seem to be so empty? Their lives are such a struggle. Uh, some of the people that are the most impressive uh, on the stage are, are just numbing themselves with alcohol when they're out of the spotlight because they just feel so empty. And so it seems that even the rich and the famous, even the most liked, actually struggle with what other people think of them. Now what I'd like to uh, ask this morning is a kind of a simple question, uh, but it's maybe a question you've never thought of before. And that is this, what does God think of us? You might say, well, I haven't thought about it, don't want to think about it. Well, I would suggest that there will be a time where you probably will start to think about it. Let me, let me describe this, and I, I hope this doesn't happen, but imagine that uh, 10 years, 20 years, next week, whenever it is, you get all dressed up and you go out for a meal and you're there at this beautiful restaurant having this meal and wearing your finest clothes and, and you're concerned that, that your jokes are funny and if they're not funny, don't risk it. And, and it's all about appearances, you know what I mean? And it's all about what these people think. And then all of a sudden you feel a tightness in the chest and a pain in the left arm. And you realize what's happening. In that moment, I don't think you'll care what other people think of you. doesn't matter if you spill the wine. doesn't matter if you stumble out of your chair. You're not thinking about what other people think. When you come close to death, that's when you think about what God thinks. 
you realize, I'm about to stand before God. I've maybe never thought about it before, never, never pondered the reality before. But if, I, if there is a God, uh, and I've always thought that he must be some sort of a judge, and if he's a judge, and I'm about to stand in front of him, what he thinks of me suddenly is very, very important. It's true, isn't it? If there is a God, and if he is going to judge, and if after we die we have to stand and give an account, actually what he thinks of us really does matter. For this month, on Sunday mornings, the next uh, three weeks after today, so for four Sunday mornings, we're going to be taking a subject, uh, a series that I've called Saved. Simple word, Saved. It's a, a word that you might tend to use in reference to a computer. You know, that file's now saved, hopefully, if the power gets cut. Or, or you might use it in reference to somebody who was drowning and they were saved. But if you've been around church at all, if you've been around Christians, you will have heard Christians probably use the word saved. And it, it all sounds really exciting when you're thinking drowning and stuff. You know, like, oh, wow, all these people have had dramatic rescues. Actually, that's sort of true, but in a, in a spiritual sense. And so... Uh, What does it mean to be saved? You hear people talking about, I've been saved so many years. I'll tell you, I've I've been saved 29 years. So, what does that mean? That's what I want us to think about over these next four weeks. And, and I want us to, uh, to ponder it, to talk about it. Uh, I'll, I'll bring messages that I hope will be as simple and clear as possible. Uh, and uh, hopefully over the process, over the course of these weeks, we'll be able to think this through and get an idea of what the Bible's talking about because I think this is really the central message. This is the main thing. What does it mean to be saved? Now, I decided to use one of the books in the Bible. There's lots of different books. Um, and I decided to use one um, for this, this reason, a couple of reasons. One, because it's helpful for this subject, but, but secondly, because of who wrote it. You see, you might think, okay, 29 years you've been saved. <laughs> uh, it sounds like you were saved young. Yes, I was. I was raised by Christians. I was taught the gospel when I was young. I responded to the message, you know. And you might say, well, okay, that's just, that's just your upbringing then. Right? That's the way you've been trained. You've been brainwashed. Well, this man that we're going to uh, read his book, he wasn't like that at all. In fact, he grew up as an absolute skeptic. Maybe the strongest skeptic that there ever has been. He's absolutely uh, Convinced when he was uh, growing up and in his young adult years, he was absolutely convinced that Jesus was not God, who he claimed to be. That he was not the Messiah, this, this Savior sent to the Jewish people. He had not come from God. He was convinced that, that anyone that followed God was a problem, a blight on the landscape. In fact, he was so incensed by them that this man even chased them, searched for them, found them uh, hiding behind locked doors and brought them to trial. And he was even involved in the execution of followers of Jesus. And it seems to me that if someone like that can be so transformed and so convinced about Jesus and so convinced about the message of salvation, this, this idea of being saved, then we probably should listen to him probably think about what it is he has to say because after a few years he wrote a letter it's it's a long letter but it was a letter that he wrote to some Christians in Rome this is in the first century and he's writing this letter and right at the start he says I am not ashamed of the gospel 
That's the message, okay? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Wow. He used to kill people for not being ashamed of the gospel. Now he's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the letter to the Romans. Let's let's turn to it and we'll uh, look at it. We're not going to look at the whole thing. It's a a very long letter. Um, Page 795 in the Blue Bible. Romans chapter 3. We're just going to touch down in four places in the next four weeks. Just looking at a couple of sentences each time. Okay, so we'll keep it nice and simple. I would encourage you, if, if you've got the chance, to read through the whole thing, even though there'll be words you may not understand and, and it, some of the sentences are a bit long. Just, just read it anyway. It's, it's an amazing uh, piece of literature. It really is worth uh, trying to understand what's going on as you read it. But we're just going to dip in four times and look at little sections and think about this idea of what it means to be saved. And very simply, uh, in terms of what we're talking about today, what does God think of us? Where do we stand before God? Let me just tell you what Paul's going to say essentially. Two things. Firstly, the bad news. We are hopeless before God. There's no way that we measure up, there's no sense in which we're good enough, we are simply not good enough for God. That's the bad news. The good news is that God has done something about it. Okay, so let's, let's just drop in uh, to the, the text. On page 795 in the Blue Bibles, we're going to start almost at the top left, uh, just after that little bit that's sort of indented. There's a little number 19. Okay, so this is Romans chapter 3, verse 19. And what we're going to read here is the end of the first whole section of the book. Um, For the first three chapters, it's been a couple of pages, what Paul has been saying is it doesn't matter if you're religious, if you're Jewish, if you're not Jewish, if you're good or bad, it doesn't matter how special you think you are, you're not good enough. Okay, that's basically what he's been saying. Doesn't matter how often you've gone to church, doesn't matter how much money you've given to charity, doesn't matter how hard you've tried, you are not good enough for God. Kind of depressing, isn't it? But that's, that's what he's saying, and as you come to the end of this section, verse 19, he's just wrapping that up. So let's look at that. He says these words. Now we know that whatever the law says, he's referring to the Old Testament rules and regulations, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Okay, so the whole world is accountable to God. Everybody has to give an answer, ultimately, to God. And then he says, verse 20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. These are big kind of Bible-type words, aren't they? But this idea of being righteous in God's sight... That, that's the idea of being in right standing. Do you know what I mean by right standing? Um, wrong standing is when you walk into a, a shop and they say, oh, you owe us money, get out if you're not going to pay. You know, you've got a tab, you haven't paid it up, you don't have good standing in that place. Right standing is when you walk in and you're welcomed because you belong. Right standing before God. 
And what he's saying here is that the law means that everybody is, is a sinner because nobody is perfect, right? Nobody keeps every little detail of the law. We could go through them. There's 613 laws in the Old Testament. And I'm sure it wouldn't be long before we find one that we could put our hands up and say, yeah, actually, yeah, I've, I've broken that one. Because none of us are perfect, are we? And so he's saying, none of us are perfect, therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by trying to be good. This is kind of hopeless, isn't it? If we in ourselves are thinking, right, I'm going to get my act together, I'm going to be good. The Bible says, forget it. Not possible. Actually, I think these, these verses kind of bust some myths. So there's a television program I, I saw on a plane once called Mythbusters. And uh, they, they, they take these myths and they check them out. And, uh, and I remember watching one about uh, a washing machine, a top-loading washing machine, and what would happen if a human stood in it. It was kind of a bizarre program. But uh, if you want to know what happened, ask me afterwards. But myth-busting. I want to bust a couple of myths, okay? Because there's all sorts of swirling myths and ideas around. And one of them is that Christians think they're better than everybody else. It's the myth you see constantly on the television. Anytime a Christian appears on soap operas, don't they always come across as mightier, holier-than-thou kind of... You know what I mean? I'm thinking a long time ago. I haven't had a television for a long time, but... These sort of Harold Bishop, Doc Cotton kind of people, you know. They're they never, never very warm. I suppose Harold was okay, but, but they always seem to come across as being a little bit pious and, and sort of, I'm better than you are. And actually some Christians do come across like that, and, and all I can do is apologize for them. If, if you know, you've met Christians and, and you've thought, well, they, they really do think they are the, the uh, police of spirituality and morality in our nation. You know, they're just out to get you and to tell you that you're bad. I'm sorry, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And I hope that's not the way it is here, because actually what the Bible teaches, and we accept, is that we're not better than anybody else. In fact, we put our hands up and say, okay, I admit it, guilty as charged, I am a bad person, I am not better than other people. Okay, so that's one myth that that I think is good to get rid of. Another one is this idea that as long as you basically do a lot of good, then the bad bits don't matter. You know what I mean? The sort of idea that ultimately God's going to have this big scale, you know, and the good will outweigh the bad, so all right, then I'll let you in. Actually, law doesn't work like that, does it? Let me just reinforce the first uh, myth-busting that all Christians are not perfect by telling you a story that's just a little bit embarrassing for me. A few years ago, I was at Bible school, okay, so that, you know, learning about the Bible and, and you know, supposedly being a good Christian. And, and one morning, I was uh, late. And so I got in the car and I drove down the road uh, a bit fast. Actually, a lot fast. Um, 37 in a 25 it was in America, that's why they had 25, which I always thought was a strange number. But I was going 12 miles an hour over the speed limit. Uh, I don't think it was dangerous, but it was wrong. And the policeman pulled me over, and, and he did everything like he's supposed to. And I felt like I was in a film, because it's an American policeman, you know. And, and, and I got this fine. And, and, and on the back of this piece of paper were three options. It's like a multiple choice. A, B, or C. Option A, pay the fine, send a check to this address. Now truth is we didn't really have any money at the time couldn't really afford that so I looked at the other two options option B go to court 
which actually did attract me a little bit. I thought it'd be kind of interesting to see court from the inside, but I couldn't because it was uh, clashing with something else. And honestly, I'd really rather not go to court. It's very embarrassing and shameful. And so I, I looked at option C. Option C was to send a letter to the judge. Now, we have a judge in our midst today, so I'm going to be careful what I say here, but send a letter to the judge. And, and I wrote this letter, and basically what I said was this. Um, essentially, I'm guilty as charged. I was going too fast. There was nothing wrong with the equipment. There was nothing wrong with the way the officer handled it. He did everything just right, and I was breaking the law, and I feel really bad, and I'm very sorry about that. But then I didn't finish the letter. I kept going. And you know what I said, essentially? I said, but I'm, I'm, I'm okay. You know, actually, I've never had a speeding ticket before, and I haven't, you know, I've got no criminal record, and I've got a wife and children, and I help out at church, and I'm a really good person. I just kind of tried to give an impression that this wasn't, you know, your really bad kind of speeder. You know what I mean? And I sent it off and sort of prayed about it and hoped that that would maybe take away the whole problem. Uh, and so, you know what happened? The judge uh, obviously saw that, read it. You know what he said? Fine. Literally, fine. Pay the fine. Because no matter how good I may be in other areas, I had broken the law, I had been speeding. And therefore there had to be a penalty. That's the way the law works, isn't it? You can't say, well, I'm good in other areas. And you don't want it to say that, actually. A pure hypothetical situation, I hope it never happens, but let's imagine that someone you care about is, is either badly hurt or killed by somebody and they catch the person who did it. And you happen to uh, be able to go to the trial, you're sitting in the witness gallery and you're watching the proceedings and the judge, uh, or however it works, talks to the person, the defendant, and says, how do you plead? And he says, guilty as charged, I hurt or I killed or I did whatever, I'm guilty. Okay, do you have anything else to say? Well, yes, I do, actually. I'd like to say that I give a lot of money to charity, and I'm really good most of the time. And in fact, I, I help out with scouts, and, I'm, and I go to church, and I help old ladies across the road, because people always say that when they feel guilty, and I, I do all these good things. How would you feel if in that moment the judge said, oh, oh yeah, fair enough, all right, never mind then. Wouldn't you be incensed? No, 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 wait a second. You don't let him free just because he picked up a crisp packet. He hurt my friend. He broke the law. There's got to be a penalty. It's a myth that somehow with God, if, if the good outweighs the bad, he'll say, okay, never mind. Simply is not true. And there's a third myth too. And the third myth is that what God really wants from us is our goodness. That what God is really concerned about is that we be good people. And if we will just be good people, he will be happy God. We, we get that idea, we hear that idea all the time, we hope it's kind of true, and we hope that our measure of goodness is good enough, but actually the Bible does not say that God is passionately concerned for our goodness. That is not what he asks of us. He asks something else altogether. So that's the bad news. As far as God's standards are concerned, we are hopeless. In uh, verse 23, just drop down a couple of sentences, the famous verse, this one, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody. Nobody reaches the standard. I was reading a book and it put it this way. It said, uh, you might say, well, I'm not as bad as a murderer or an adulterer or a drug dealer or whatever. Fill in the blank. I'm not as bad as them. 
Which is true. You, maybe you're not that bad. And maybe they are down, not just in a valley, they're down in a pit they are so bad. And maybe you are so good you're on the mountaintop of human morality. But the reality is, if the goal is to touch the stars, you're both hopelessly lost. You're both hopelessly falling short of the standard. It's true, isn't it? If you're trying to touch the stars, being on top of a mountain actually doesn't help. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us. And we all like to say, well, yeah, but I'm not as bad as... Or I'm not... I'm not saying you are. I'm not saying I am. Just saying we've all fallen short. And so if we hope to stand before God and say, uh, okay, um, the, the reason that I think you should look on me kindly and with favor is because of... Forget it. There's no way that we can stand before God and say, I've done this, or I've done that, or I've not done this, or I've not done that, because God's standards are so perfect that every one of us has fallen short. Bad news. Desperately bad news, if we're trying to be good enough. But the amazing thing is that Paul, at this point, after three chapters of that stuff, I mean, it's been really a lot of uh, very uh, bad news, at this point, he inserts the phrase, but now. And he turns it around. He says, but now. And basically what he's going to say is that, but now God has done something. We could never take care of the issue. We could never fix the problem. But now God has done something. Let's look at it. Verse 21. He says, but now a righteousness from God, a right standing with God that comes from God, apart from the law, without the law. The law is nothing to do with it. It has been made known, to which the law, capital L, and the prophets, capital P, testify. That's talking about the Old Testament. What he's saying there is that way back in, in all these uh, books of the Old Testament, Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon and the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel and all of those people, they all testified that ultimately God was going to do something about it and now it's been made known, now it's become clear what it is that he's done. He, he says, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. This righteousness from God comes, how? Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Wow. So those people who believe in Jesus Christ, who have faith in him, faith and belief, trust, same word, same idea. If we just trust in Jesus Christ, that's, that's what it takes? Yeah, that's what it takes. Oh, it's too easy. Take it or leave it. It's too easy, but it's true. You see, that's what the message of the Bible is. That God has offered us his righteousness. He has made it possible for us to be able to stand before him in a good standing where he says, I am delighted that you're here. Come in and be with me. Spend eternity in a wonderful place. But hang on a minute. Surely there's got to be some, some rules or something, some expectations. I mean, that's the way we work as humans, isn't it? Nothing is free, you've got to earn it, and all that kind of stuff. Well, no, you cannot earn this. Look at, uh, as he continues here, there's no difference. Among those who believe, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's actually talking about people who are Christians. And are justified freely, as a gift, by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Well, the redemption, the buying 
back, the, the setting free that Jesus has done. You know, when you think of, of church, you maybe you think of a cross, image, a crucifix or something like that. The reason the cross is the main image used in churches, the main uh, symbol used for Christianity, is because it's right at the centre of the message of the Bible. It's right at the centre of everything that we believe. That we do not have right standing with God and we cannot earn it. We can never be good enough. But God has done something. And what God has done is to send his son to die on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty. That the justice of God was, was satisfied. But instead of that justice being meted out on you and on me as we deserve, it was meted out on him. Because he was perfect. He never did anything wrong. He didn't deserve the slightest bit of punishment, but he took it in our place. And having paid that price, it allows us to go free. Free of the guilt. Free of the the burden to try to be good enough. Free of the sense that somehow I don't quite measure up. Jesus has measured up and he's chosen to die in our place. That was God's plan. So that as it says here... Verse 24, all of, uh, sorry, verse 24, are justified freely as a gift. It's a gift. You don't earn a gift. You don't pay back a gift. You don't uh, invest money so that you receive a gift. The true gift is free, isn't it? Free to you. But there's a cost for the giver. You know how it works at Christmas time. You decide that you're going to be very gracious and generous and you decide to give a gift uh, to somebody, maybe to a a child or or whoever. And and you go to the shop and you pay the money and you give them the gift. And when you give them the gift, hopefully you don't expect them to take out their wallet and say, right, how much do I owe you? Even if you did forget to take the price tag off. No, no, put, put that away. It's a gift. It's free. Well, it's not free. It's a cost. Yeah, there is a cost. I've paid it. You take it. It's free. That's what Paul here is saying God has done for us. He's paid the price. He's taken care of it. He's taken it all on himself so that we simply accept, we simply receive freely the gift of a right standing before God. You've got to admit, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? To be able... To stand before the God who is the God, the only God, capital G God. To stand before God and to be able to stand there with confidence. To be able to stand there, even maybe with a smile on your face. And to look at him and see a smile on his. And and if he says uh, to you, sometimes we use this, this question when we're talking to people, you know, we say, hey, if you die today... And you stood before God and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? You know what the answer should be? If we're really believing what the Bible teaches, the answer should be, I don't deserve anything but judgment. I'm a sinner. But I stand here confident because of what Jesus has done. When he died, he died in my place and I'm trusting in that. And and so, it's, it's, it's Jesus... that's that's all I've got to say and God says delighted to have you here welcome home you have right standing and if as you're you're walking in you look over your shoulder and say hey I really don't want to risk mentioning it but what about all the things I did God will say no record of those against you 
yeah, but, but fair enough, but what about the really bad things I did? Or some of the things I thought were really bad. Yeah, I know. But I'm choosing not to remember those. Because the price has been paid. Justice has already been served. You are free. Come in. It's amazing, isn't it? All of that. A right standing with God offered to us based on what? What, how, what do we do? Do we earn it? No. Do we have to be good enough? No, you're not. Nor am I. None of us are. What do we have to do? Nothing. It's through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Wow. Seems like faith is a big word. What does it mean to have faith in Jesus Christ? I'll demonstrate with, with this stool. You might be wondering, why is there a stool at the front? Um, Let's say that I have faith in this stool. Yeah, I believe it exists. Is that faith? Not really. Not in the way that Paul's talking about here. For me to say, I have faith in Jesus because I believe he exists, is not the point. Anybody willing to study the evidence will accept that he existed. That's not faith. Okay, what about if I say, well, I know lots and lots of things about this stool. I know what it's made of, I know how many screws, what kind of wood, how much it costs, where you can get them. I know all the facts. Is that faith? Well, no, it's not, is it? In the same way as as saying, well, I know lots about God, and I know lots about Jesus, and I know lots about the Bible, and I've learned lots of stories, and I've gone to church. That doesn't mean that you have faith. You see, what God is asking of us is not that we do anything or commit to anything or promise anything. What he's asking of us is that we entrust ourselves fully to what he has provided for us when Jesus died on the cross. So that means if I'm going to entrust myself fully to this stool, it doesn't matter what I think of it, it doesn't matter that I believe it exists, what matters is, is what happens when I go like that. Not like this. Like that. Place my entire weight on the stool. If the stool collapses, I'm going down. And that's the same way it is with the gospel. The good news that Jesus has taken care of it. If Jesus' death was not enough, I'm lost. Because I am taking my entire life, my entire hope, my entire eternity, I'm taking the whole thing, and I'm saying, God, I am entrusting this to what Jesus has done. And if that can't take the weight, I've got no plan B. Do you have a plan B? Because God doesn't want you to have plan B, C, D, and E, you know, in the sort of, I'll do this, but I'll also do that, and I'll have a little amulet and a lucky charm and a rabbit's foot, and, you know, uh, and I'll say some Muslim prayers and some Buddhist prayers, and, and I'll cover the bases. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, trust in Jesus. There's, there, there's no other way. For those who are willing to place their trust in Him, God gives a right standing before Him. Kind of simple. I think it's amazing, but actually, that's just the beginning. Next week, we're going to go further. We're going to look at another passage. I'd encourage you, read Romans, see if you can guess what we're going to look at next week. That would be kind of a fun exercise to do. But but here's the the thing. I am not going to manipulate or create some sort of uncomfortable moment where you sort of feel obligated to do something or say something. I'm not into that at all. 
in fact, this may not be the best analogy, but I couldn't really find another one. I sort of feel a bit like someone trying to convince somebody else to go on a blind date. Maybe you've had that experience. I haven't. Praise the Lord. But, but, you know, essentially what happens is uh, somebody is trying to convince someone else that this other person's really cool, really nice, really attractive, really wonderful. Uh, and maybe if they're really convincing, you'll say, okay, but only once. The reality is you will not commit your life to that person and marry them until you get to know them, right? Until you spend time with them, until you find yourself attracted to them and drawn to them. And so that's what I want to suggest that, that we do. If, if you listen to this this morning, you say, actually, you know what, Peter... You're right. I don't know. I need to know. I've got to, I want to place my trust in you. What do I have to do? What do I have to say? How does it work? Great. Please come and talk to me or, or talk to somebody else. That's wonderful. But I'm not going to force that on anybody here. But what I would encourage you to do is to spend some time with God. So I don't even know he exists. That's fine. Nothing to lose. But two, two things. Firstly, try praying. And God's okay, he can handle it. If you say, hey, hey God, I don't even know if you exist. In fact, I'm not going to say it out loud because this is embarrassing, so I'm just going to whisper it. But God, if you exist, I want to know. If you exist, if this is true, this is so momentous, this is so huge, I, I, need, to be, I need to know. Yeah, just talk to him like that. And, and then try reading the Bible. Read the book of Romans, if you like, or read the book of Mark. That's a few books earlier. It's a bit easier to read, read stories of Jesus. Just spend some time with him. Because I'm not trying to twist your arm into placing your faith in a God you're not even convinced exists. I'm just presenting the message and encouraging you to spend time and ask him and see what he does. Because at some point, maybe this week, maybe tonight, maybe next week, maybe three months from now, maybe there'll come this point in time where you say, you know what? This isn't out there anymore. This isn't just a a, a concept or a a religious exploration. I've become convinced this is true. Embarrassed to say it, but I kind of believe it. See, God can do that. God can work within us as we seek him in response to how he has first sought us. He's able to bring us to that place where we are willing. Not just to say, okay, I'm kind of interested I'm kind of willing to find out some more. But where we get to the point where we say, I'm going to put everything I've got on him. I'm going to trust him.